0: Hello left fielders, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively
1: and think differently. Let's go. A recession is the Fed's best friend right now because what it will do is increase unemployment, it will reduce spending, and therefore it reduce inflation. And so I think that the Fed is gonna push until we get major changes in the employment rate data. And I think we're far from that right now. And I think, unfortunately, the inflation rate is giving the Fed the green light to just keep going full steam ahead.
2: Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeFest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeFest hire a Globetrotter? Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest customers, just check out Tribevest YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today.
3: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community.
1: Hi, this is Ryan Stieg, one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors, and
2: you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field.
0: I'm super excited today to have Jeremy Roll with us. He started investing in real estate in 2002, left his corporate job to go full-time passive investor in 2007. He's an investor currently in over 60 deals, more than a billion dollars of real estate and business assets. He is the co-founder of Four Investors, Buy Investors, a community he started in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and education for real estate investors, which sounds very familiar because that's what we do at LFI as well. He has been a big supporter of Leftfield Investors since the beginning. He was one of our first guests. You can check it out on episode six of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. So Jeremy, welcome back. We're glad to have you.
1: Yes. Thanks very much for having me back. Really appreciate it. I just hope this is helpful for your listeners. It
0: will be. It was last time, and I'm confident it will be again. The way we like to start is to get your financial journey. Now, we have a lot more listeners than we did in episode six. So, if people want to hear the full story, they could go back to episode six. But can you give us the version, maybe a little shortened version, but how you got into passive investing, how you got into real estate, and how you became a full time passive investor?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks again for everyone who's joining us. I'll try to keep this one short. I, on the passive investing side, I was investing in the stock market prior to the dot com crash. And when a dot-com crash occurred, I was just sick of the stock market from both a a volatility perspective, but even more importantly, frankly, just a lack of predictability perspective. Both were just, I'm really a low risk, slow and steady guy. I like to be planned out and not knowing whether the stock market would be up 30% or down 30% in a year was not a good strategy for me in terms of predictability for my retirement account 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. So I started to look at different ways to invest in 2001. And I came across the concept of cash, passive cash flow, because I was actually working in the corporate world back in Disney headquarters at that time in Los Angeles. And I was way too busy to do anything actively. So I came across cash flow, passive cash flow, and the syndication or the kind of pooling of investors model. And I dipped my foot in it starting in early 2002. Ended up rolling all my savings from stocks and bonds into cash flow from 02 to 07. And honestly, I wanted to have the paycheck and the cash flow. The whole point of the cash flow was just more predictability for my retirement account. I wasn't looking to leave the corporate world, but I had a last strong moment with a manager that I had at, I was working at Toyota headquarters in Los Angeles at the time. And I decided to take a risk and leave because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of. So I left the corporate world in June, 2007. And so I've been a passive cash flow investor for over 20 years now, but full-time for over 15 years.
0: There aren't many people that have a track record that long. And that's why we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. And I'd like to just dig right into it. I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions about the economy and where things are going. And it's impossible to know for sure. But I'd like to hear what your outlook is for maybe the last quarter here, where in 2022, this will be released in November. So I guess the last couple of months of 2022, and then heading into 2023 and beyond, what do you see as some of the things that will affect real estate investors, specifically those of us that invest passively into syndications.
1: Sure. Yeah. I was just at a on a macroeconomic panel last night. So this is very salient for me. It's actually great timing because we're recording us on a day where the CPI was just released for the month of October. And it was higher than expected. And just to give people an idea here, so it was at 8.2 a couple months ago, went up to 8.3 last month, now back down to 8.2, but basically going nowhere. And I'll get into that in a second because it actually not totally surprising for a specific reason. But what I'm anticipating is just more inflation. This is going to signal that the Fed has to keep being aggressive. And I suspect that now there's some predictions that the 75 basis point increase in early November is pretty much a very high probability, 98% chance lock. But now people are now anticipating a 75 basis point increase in December, which wasn't the case before, it was 50. So the Fed is looking to end the year, probably at about 4.5% Fed funds rate, give or take, where it was originally when it started in March, it was predicting 3.25, I remember correctly. So we're way ahead of where the Fed thought we were going to be at this point. And that means that there's been worse inflation than when they started this hiking. But for 2023, I think there's going to be two very salient things. I think one is that it takes six to 12 month lag when the Fed typically starts to raise rates until it starts to have an impact on the market and everything. And so as far as inflation goes, and it also, once we cross across 5% inflation, it takes on average three years to come back to normalized inflation rates. So for anyone who is hoping this is going to be done in the next two or three months, or it's going to be half in the next four months, If you're looking at probabilities, which is what I try to do for myself to understand where I should invest, the probability is very not much in your favor that's going to happen. I am fully expecting that the interest rate increases that the Fed started in March are going to really impact the market starting in the second half of 2023. And I think that's going to push us potentially into a recession, if not by then, then most likely. It's hard to time that. And unfortunately, I believe, and I hate to say this, but I think it's true, is that a recession is the Fed's best friend right now, because what it will do is increase unemployment, it will reduce spending, and therefore it reduce inflation. And so I think that the Fed is going to push until we get major changes in the employment rate data. And I think we're far from that right now. And I think, unfortunately, the inflation rate is giving the Fed the green light to just keep going full steam ahead. So that's the economic side. From an investing perspective, I think that what that means for us is that there is still tremendous risk for interest rates to continue to go up, which means there's tremendous risk and probability for asset prices to continue to go down. They've already started, depending on the asset. And so as an investor, you have to be very cognizant of the fact that the probabilities are in the favor of interest rates going up, asset prices continue to go down. And keep in mind that asset prices typically adjust slowly in real estate. That process typically takes a good two years to really get to the bottom. Now that process arguably started between March and May, depending on who you ask, some say January, but sometime in the first half or towards the end of the first half of 2022. And I don't think we're gonna see anything close to bottom until we hit at least 2024. I could be wrong. I'm just using probabilities right now. Anything could change. And by the way, the big thing that can happen to change things is the Fed or the government with stimulus or interest rates because things have been so artificial for so long now that you could take all these probabilities and do the best you can with them as an investor. But then the Fed or the government comes in and just says, screw the probabilities, here's what's happening. All right, We're printing $3 trillion. And so I'm hoping that's not gonna happen and I can't operate as if that's gonna happen, but those are the kinds of things that can derail all of this information. And I wanna point out that the government, I got concerned at the end of 2016 From a cycle timing perspective. And I think we would have had a recession in 18 or 19, had it not been for Trump having stimulus at a very unusual time where the economy was still pretty hot. And that stimulus, which was unusual at the time, then pushed things further back as far as how long this recovery was. And then with the pandemic, we were about to have a recession. We had the inverted yield curve. We were about to go recession probably right about March of 2020. And then the government printed trillions of dollars and said, screw the recession. It's going to be a few years from now, a couple of years from now. As an investor, I've been concerned for many years following these probabilities. And the government has said, screw your probabilities for a long time now. But I'm hoping that they'll let this cleansing happen as far as an end of cycle reset to put us back into a starting position for another cycle.
0: Okay. You covered a lot of things there, and that's fantastic. I want to go back to interest rates for a second, because you mentioned that they'd be about four and a half percent at the end of the year with the Fed charges. And so- isn't that still historically low? Is there potential for a lot more raises? Or the other question is, if it just stays at that rate, you can still, as a real estate investor, you can still make money and figure out ways to get cash flow with interest rates at that level, can't you?
1: Oh, look, there's always ways to make money. And frankly, I tell everybody, Jim, if you offer me your house for a dollar, I'll make a lot of money off of it. So if you buy assets at the right price, you'll always make a lot of money off of it, even if interest rates are at 20%. So price is really key in terms of that equation. As far as interest rates go, the challenge, and you are right, it's still pretty low historically. Since the 70s, the Fed has been pushing the rate down for 50 years, for half a century. And now it's going a little bit in the opposite direction. My personal opinion is that longer term, talking next 10 years, is still going to go in that direction. I don't think they can afford to keep the interest rate high because of debt service. We're at 125% GDP now. I don't think they can afford it to be very high for a long time. I think eventually they'll pivot and go down once they cause a recession and get some of the inflation in check. They'll probably then start typical QE and lower interest rates, but at a much slower pace so they don't get all this inflation happening again. That's what they're trying to hit right now. But here's the thing. If you look back in the early 80s when Volcker was dealing with this, the numbers are defaulting, which is shocking. The Fed funds rate went all the way to 20%, but inflation was at 13%. That's published inflation at the time. If you measure inflation the way it used to be measured, we're currently at 16 to 17% at the moment, but we are at 3% Fed's funds rate, 3.25 or whatever. We are so far off from what the Fed is probably supposed to be doing but can't afford to do and may get a lot of help from an economic downturn. They're probably not going to have to go all the way up there because I think they're going to accomplish some of it from a recession and from an employment going up. But I just want to point out that anyone thinking that they're just gonna stop at 4.5 and then start to reduce quickly, another thing you should know is that normally in these situations when they stop, they go flat for a while to see what's happening. And part of that reason is because there's delayed effect and they have to see what's happening from that delayed effect and measure it correctly. So anyway, I know that's a lot to unbox, but the bottom line is that we are way low compared to where inflation is right now as far as them truly dealing with
0: it. And so inflate is the big issue, the big problem, right? Is that possible? Could some of it, inflation start slowing down as supply chain bottlenecks get cleared up as companies start onshoring production in the U.S.? Are there other things that could affect the inflation print so we don't have to keep increasing the the interest rates?
1: The answer is for sure, yes. I haven't analyzed how much of an impact that could have relative to everything else, to be honest. And one of the reasons why I haven't done that is because demand is slowing. Look at FedEx their earnings, forward earnings, they literally just removed guidance completely said there's going to be a global recession. Clearing up the supply chain at that point may not be helpful because demand is going to be lower. So it's almost like clearing itself. But again, this goes back to the recession taking care of some of these. And so to me, I think what's going to have a much bigger impact than that is recession, unemployment going up, consumer spending going down. In addition to the Fed funds rate being continued to be increased, if you're talking about not that piece, I think that's going to be the biggest other piece.
0: Okay. And we're investors. So we need to think of all, whatever happens in the economy happens. We can't affect it. We just have to go on and figure out how we're going to keep investing. And last time we talked episode six, you had said you were mostly on the sidelines regarding new investments. So a couple questions relating to that. If you were starting out now as a passive investor and you didn't want to wait on the sidelines because you have this cash and you need to start your journey, you need to get it going, right? You have to take some action, not just any action, but smart action. And you didn't want to wait on the sidelines for 12 or 18 months. What asset classes do you think you would be looking in? Before you answer that, I'm also going to ask you what your personal favorite asset classes are. Kind of two separate questions, but let's start with someone getting going. What what should they be investing in right now if they don't want to sit on the sidelines?
1: Okay. So just to be clear, I am not a financial advisor. I'm giving you my opinion. I am personally sitting on the sidelines. So it's not what I would tell people to do. But based on what you're asking, one thing I just want to point out before I answer the question, even I think it's really important to consider. We've been through a decent amount of Fed funds rate hikes already. There's a couple more coming in the next couple of months. My suggestion would be that we have a short amount of time to wait to see the impact of all of these hikes as far as how much our price is going to adjust next year, especially the first half of the year with the kind of a negative sentiment in the market versus risk is high. So short timeline for me to wait, risk is high. So if I'm new, I would tell people there's a short timeline to wait. And I don't mean 12 to 18 months. You can wait three to six months and see what happens at the beginning of next year sentiment and how much prices are adjusting as people are now really digesting what's happened in 2022 and realizing prices are going down. Everyone's accepting it. The sellers are going to start to accept it much more readily. So that's a great equation, high risk, short timeline. That's a very good risk reward equation for an investor. As far as I'm concerned for an argument, people to wait. But anyway, if you actually have to put the work money right now, there's two things I would say. One is if you could find assets where you don't have to worry about the prices going down or them depreciating, that's one possibility. My biggest concern is investing at the wrong time when asset prices will go down into the future and then you're investing at the wrong time. Assuming you believe that cash flow is going to be steady and isn't going to be too much at risk from a recession. Okay. And The answer you're looking for me is that I would tell people that if you're hell-bent on getting money to work and you don't mind if an asset price goes down and you think it'll come back up over time, which a lot of people believe and is probably theoretically true, then I would strongly recommend looking at something that has a 10-year fixed rate loan that is highly occupied, is known to weather a downturn reasonably well, and that you're fairly confident in that the cash flow is going to continue and you're going to benefit from the cash flow so you're getting your money to work. Two quick examples come to mind, probably even three that do really well in a downturn. Mobile home parks do very well in a recession, typically. And of course, depends on the recession, depends on the every, so many factors. How many, what percent of owner-occupied homes are there? There's some, but I'm giving you a generalization. That's number one. Number two is apartments can do well. I do think we're going to see decreased rents, which probably no one's ever said on here before because no one can even envision. I'm fully convinced because that's what happens in a downturn. And that I think is coming up. And I think all these asset classes are at risk of reduced rents in a recession, but I think that uh, these will do okay during a recession, relatively speaking. So apartments with a longer-term debt, that's stabilized. I wouldn't necessarily go into a value ideal that's depending on all these things happening, like increased rents, et cetera. And then self-storage as well can do well in the recession. People sometimes will have to go back home. They'll have to bunk up with somebody else, have to store things. Re- storage did very well in the last recession relative to other asset classes. None of these are perfect. All of them will probably have a rent increase, but these are the better of the bunch if you're absolutely hell-bent on putting money to work.
2: Hey, fielders, This is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the Masterclass button at the top. Or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there.
0: Hi, Leftfielders. I'm Matt Piccini. My journey from actor to full-time investor and operator of thousands of apartment units has taught me a lot about what goes on behind the scenes of a deal. I'm here to share my insider's knowledge of passive investing with you helping you make informed decisions about how to invest your hard-earned cash, put your money to work where it can make a positive impact, and write your own story. Head on over to Picheni.com where you can book a free strategy session with me to learn more about my approach to real estate investing. That's P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. The next question. So back in episode six, I think that was March of 2021, roughly you were still thinking the recession was coming or something was happening. And you said you were focusing on short-term investments such as hard money loans, flips, and assets that don't rely on appreciation such as ATMs. So is that still the case? Is that still what you're looking at if you were to invest or like an investor that's already established and can wait a little bit, would those be still good investments?
1: Yeah. So great question, Jim. So in 2021, when the interest rates weren't hiking like crazy, I was looking at three buckets concerned about a recession coming up. One, to your point, was short-term opportunity where I think the risk was relatively low and I thought the predictability of getting your return was high. Two, just so you can then cash that out and have money to deploy at a better time potentially. Two was unusual opportunities. And three was opportunities like the ATMs where we don't have to worry about the asset prices going down. At the moment, I pulled the short-term one to me, because it's very hard to find short term stuff that is really predictable in an environment of highly increasing asset prices. So I used to do a lot. I've done hard money lending for many years every year. I pulled my hard money lending. It was either January, February or March, given that the interest rates were about to go up. And that's a huge risk to me, I believe, for someone who has to either refinance or sell because now asset price is decreasing, selling into that or refinancing it's a much higher rate. So that's the one that I pulled, that vertical I pulled. I don't think that's really easy to achieve at the moment. The other two verticals still remain. Still hard to find stuff. I always invest. There's always unique opportunities out there, but just still hard to find stuff right now.
0: And so if you're sitting on the sidelines right now, is there any place you can put your cash to get some kind of yield or are you just sitting on cash and
1: just waiting? Yeah, good question. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with some of my cash and I'm on the cusp of most likely buying treasuries because what's happened is that as the interest rate increases went up so much, and I should... Qualify this. I wanted something that had three months. I didn't want to go into a year until an inflation protected tip. That is a very good, I believe. If you can get that, I think they're in the nines From what I've heard, that is a great risk reward if you can park money for one year right now. But I don't want to wait that long for liquidity. So really short term, three months or sooner, the highest probability of what I'm gonna do right now is buy three month treasury at three and a half percent. I haven't looked at the rates in the past couple of days, but they've been between three and a quarter, three and a half. Not great, better than nothing, but really good short term liquidity. And obviously risk is pretty low. I was planning on speaking to my broker as far as the fixed income side, as well, but there's other better suggestions. That's what I came up with, was not able to wait on hold long enough yesterday to figure that out. So that's my current thought, but we'll see what happens.
0: Okay. And now I kind of want to pivot to some other specific investing type topics. So first thing is a lot of operators specifically in multifamily over the last few years had used bridge debt, especially for their value add deals. So how do you see that panning out? Do you think there's going to be a lot of operators or deals that people got in with bridge debt that end up really struggling and maybe having to sell early or capital calls? Or what do you think is going to happen with all that bridge debt?
1: Yeah. I think that from a pure numbers perspective, if you are in a strong market with very large rent increases that you were able to achieve in that model, I think you're going to be okay up until deploying the capital or let's say starting that project and getting some of those new rents achieved in this towards the middle of 2021, let's call it plus or minus. Anyone who closed on a deal after that, I think mathematically with the amount of interest rate increase, assuming you were in the typical model of an 80% LTV that I used to see all the time. I've actually never invested in one of these, just so you know, but I've talked to people about numbers, run some numbers. It seems impossible is a bad word, but at the moment, it seems almost impossible. if not impossible for those deals to actually ever be okay. Because I think they certainly right now, certainly they have a coverage ratio problem and let's not even talk about if rents eventually go down. They'll have a problem getting sufficient refinance terms to be able to cover the original debt. And so I've heard anecdotally that some of the deals are already starting to try to short sale or trade in anticipation of just the math doesn't work. So I think that anyone before then, if they really achieve, let's say 20% plus rent growth in a lot of those deals, I think that the math will work for them and some of them have already refined. I think we're gonna see those opportunities come to market sometime in the next one to two years, if not already, they're starting a little bit. And those will be a really good example of a deal that could make sense in a challenging time. But hey, that's all going to depend on the sale price.
0: And what happens if they can't service the debt? Are there buyers out there that are going to sell? Are they going to have to lower the price? From an investor perspective, if I invested $50,000 in a multifamily deal with bridge debt at the end of 2021, and I know this is just speculation, right? We're just talking here. Am I going to lose money or am I just not going to make as much money?
1: Great question. So I have not invested one of these. So I've only done so much number crunching, very high level. So I haven't analyzed that exact scenario. But I believe the most likely scenario in that case is going to be either the owners are going to be able to short sale and essentially get less than what they paid. And the lenders will okay that in lieu of foreclosure. And then the investors will probably not going to cover either most or all of the debt and the investors will get nothing or the property will get foreclosed and the investors will get nothing. So I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but I think that's the reality of the numbers. So if you're listening to this and you invested in one of these states from the beginning of 2021 and on, I would strongly recommend, if you want to understand what's going on, to sit down and run the numbers with the sponsor, get them to estimate what they think is going to happen because they understand a the deal better than anybody. If you're concerned, just understand where you can end up.
0: So when you're talking about perhaps they're having to sell those deals or get out of those deals. Is that because they can't pay the mortgage? And so then they they end up having to sell?
1: No, there's a couple of different things going on. So first of all, rent increases have decelerated tremendously in some key markets right now, and in fact, are actually running negative month over month in some key markets. And so it all depends on when you invested and when you started your value-add plan and when you were actually able to do these rehabs and get people in. But some other clauses that exist in some of these that may put someone into default well before a refinance event. And that's what I'm talking about with a potential short sell or even foreclosure, because at that point, you're breaching the terms of the debt you're in default already. And that's going to happen to these deals much sooner than the three-year to five-year refinance period.
0: And the refinance isn't really possible because interest rates have gone up so much, and you can't find the fixed rate debt that you're hoping for, right? There's a whole point of the bridge debt. It's a bridge to fixed debt. And that is not going to work in the business plan.
1: Yeah. There's actually several challenges associated with that. The refinance isn't going to work because of a lot of these deals were taken at 80% loan-to-value and have a big chunk of debt that won't be covered in a current valuation, for example, because prices are already down. B, they may, before then, may breach the debt coverage ratio because of the lack of revenue. And C, as it stands today, terms for debt are not as favorable as they used to be into refining. And so loan-to-values are lower. There's a lot less lenders out there. I think that's only going to get worse before it gets better. I think they're going to have a lot less liquidity available for apartment investors in all of 2023 compared to now. And I could be wrong. I know it's a big statement, but that's when a lot of this carnage is going to become much more apparent with the economy. That's when lenders are going to get scared. They're going to have to shore up their reserves, all kinds of stuff. That's just started to happen, but it hasn't been a complete capitulation event yet. And so between the worst terms and terms of loan to value, higher debt coverage ratio requirements that some of them are employing, the higher debt coverage ratio that results of higher interest rates, all kinds of stuff. There's myriads of ways that these cannot pencil out any. And that's why I'm concerned for anyone who's invested in something the last year or this year and that.
0: So what happens in your experience, maybe you haven't experienced it, but when sponsors, they've said here the pro forma is 12%, 15% IRR, 20% IRR over the last couple of years. And now they're going to come to you and say bridge debt, Oops, we're selling it. You're not getting your capital back. What happens to those operators? Is it, are you thinking that this is going to affect all the operators, 50% of the operators? And then what happens to those? Who's going to invest with those people again?
1: It's a great question. <laughs> Not only have I not personally been through that, but this is obviously a unique time with the amount that rates have shot up. So I've never think of I've never been in a scenario like that. So I don't know whether because when you asked me that question, what I thought you were going to say is, "Are investors going to sue? What's going to happen?" Those are all legal questions that I can speculate on, but I'm not an attorney. But I think a lot of those operators, look, it depends. Those operators may have had ten or twenty successful bridge loan deals behind them for two or three years. Investors made a boatload of money, and then the music stopped, and investors lost a little money. But hey. Those investors may have made a, a net amount of a larger money, amount of money and maybe still willing to invest in a different structure if that sponsor is going to tell them what they're doing to adjust to the times. But I do think some of the newer sponsors are going to have a big problem and are going to have to exit this game potentially. Yeah, This is part of what happens in a downturn, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and this is where I think communication is critical because, as I've said before, if the deal is going south and uh, the sponsors explaining it to me on the way down and talking to us and giving us the reasons behind it, then I can live with that a lot better than those that are not responding, hiding, running, and not being communicative. So I think it's important, like you said, to get out in front of it and start talking to your operators now.
1: Yeah. And I agree with you on that. Although I will say that even if it's a newer sponsor being as communicative as possible and you've lost all your money and no one's ever made money with them or very few people have, I'm not quite sure how they're going to raise money. And by the way, nothing we should be clear about is that the hardest time for sponsors to raise money is when the best deals are out there when it's people are scared. And so they would have had a hell of a time trying to raise money even if things were going okay in the next year or two. And so those sponsors may still end up exiting the business.
0: Yeah. And this might be a crazy question, but is there any chance, and this is too broad maybe, but can you value add your way out of this? If you're an operator with bad bridge debt, the interest rates are high, and you did a value-add deal, and you just tried to get as much done as quickly as possible so you can get rents up or get the classic unit turned into a supreme unit or whatever they call it, can you value-add your way out of it?
1: Yeah. And so that's why I was getting to the exact dates that I was mentioning. So I think the people who executed well from 2019 and 20 are essentially have likely either already value-added their way out of it, or will eventually end up in a refi that will have gotten them to that point. I think that this is a question of runway. Airplanes trying to take off. If your airplane try to take off with a much smaller runway, those people, I think, at 2021, at some starting point, won't have enough runway to value-added their way out of it. And so the last question on this topic, I think,
0: is, let's say that you're looking at a new deal that's coming out, and they have reasonable fixed-rate debt for 10 years, and they have owned a value in the 60s, because I'm seeing some of these deals. And I know you're on the sidelines, but for the average investor who wants to still put money to to work, is that something that seems reasonable that they might be okay? (laughs) I guess is my question.
1: Yeah, look, it's a good question, because I would then turn back to you and say, what price are they paying? Because if the formula is that you got low debt ratio, and then you have 10-year fixed rate loan, and you're getting a pretty good price for the property, so the cash flow is starting in a good place. The cash flow could go down during a downturn, but I think you have enough padding there that it'll probably survive a downturn. And I'm making a lot of generalizations. You really have to run the numbers. It depends on the expense ratio. It depends on who's managing. It depends on if it's a class A, B, C, how much money is spent on capital, all kinds of stuff, what the reserves will look like. But there's definitely scenarios where people could potentially be okay. I do think, though, that the big question mark is going to be, If rents go down, which I believe they will, then how much will they go down and which market you're looking at? Because I will say this, I do think you have a much higher risk of having a problem in a much more volatile market. And I don't mean volatile historically, like LA, San Francisco, New York, and all those. I'm talking about even markets that were crazy volatile recently. Certain markets in Arizona, Texas, and other places that had huge rent run-ups, Boise, Idaho, all this thing. I think those are the ones who are going to have the highest risk of the pendulum swinging the other way. And if you're getting in and then your rents are going down quickly because you just happen to get into the wrong market, that could cause a big problem. You're still going to have to hit debt coverage ratio or being default on a loan and stuff. So there's still a lot to consider, not just are you going to be cash flow positive, period.
0: Yeah. And the counter to that, and I don't know if it's true or not, markets like Phoenix or Dallas, some of those, there's still a lot of people moving there. They still don't have enough housing. So how can rents go down when demand is still going to be there?
1: Yeah, so Jim, this is the same argument I heard this last night too. There's so much liquidity in the market. Do you know how much liquidity there was in the market in 2007? A boatload of liquidity in the market. How did that happen then? The way that rents go down is a domino effect. Rents go down because people lose their jobs, can't afford to pay rent, and then have to pair up with somebody else or or move into their house. And demand goes down. And then supply goes up as a result. And then there have to be concessions or rent reductions. There was a shortage of supply of housing in 2007 and 8 as well, I'm telling you. And we had rents go down. And I would tell people out there, be very careful with the whole assumption of, oh, there's so much liquidity. This stuff, that's always the same at the end of a cycle until it isn't. And it goes bad because dominoes fall and these dominoes that fall cause these other things to happen. So if you're going with probabilities like I do, probabilities are that we're going to see rent reductions. And I think probabilities are higher of worse rent reductions. In areas that had much higher rent increases.
0: But that makes sense. And like you said, we'll see what happens. But there are patterns to the cycles. And that's what's happened historically. So there's no reason to think that won't happen again. I want to, again, pivot to a different topic a little bit. Are you still evaluating and looking at deals? If so, have you seen like, any red flags, things that concern you, things that people should stay away from that we haven't already talked about?
1: that we haven't talked about. I've been very concerned about these bridge loan deals for myself just in the way that I invest. And so I haven't done any of them since they started. And I still see some people doing them out there. That is very concerning to me because if you're gonna look at one of those deals right now, you really need to just tear apart the pro forma to understand what's going on before you consider it at this particular point with everything we've talked about. As far as other deal types go, look, I have the same concern across everything, which is asset price decreases. But the other thing we haven't talked about is If rents go down in an inflationary period from an expense perspective, you're gonna have a greatly decreased NOI. And there's two challenges and concerns I have investing today versus next year, the year after, which is not just asset prices decreasing because of interest rates going up, it's asset prices decreasing because your NOI is lower than it was a year ago. And then you have a compounded effect Actually, one on the other, and so that actually is what I think is the realistic scenario from a probability perspective. You're actually going to have both compounding on each other. If you're looking to get into a deal today, it's important to model that out and take that in consideration. Obviously, if it's a short-term deal, that's a much higher risk. If you don't care if the asset price goes down in the meantime, then just make sure you look at the rent side of the equation and not necessarily the value side of the equation. But so I'm concerned about both of those having. A, but the good news is if you wait you can potentially benefit from that compounded effect if that's what you believe the right thing is to do. So
0: I imagine that you get a lot of operators, syndicators contacting you wanting to share deals. I know that I get a lot and you must get even more because you've been doing this for so long. How do you sort through that? And how do you determine if a syndicator that's new to you is worth putting through your vetting process?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to put aside timing right now because I'm obviously on the sidelines for random and normal deals anyway. But I'm going to answer this really high level because it can end up being a very long discussion. But really high level, what I'm trying to do is find someone who aligns with my personality, who's looking to under-promise and over-deliver with their assumptions, be very conservative, be very detailed, and someone who I think has a high probability of overperforming and who is trying to build long-term relationships with investors by using conservative numbers. And I'm trying to avoid someone who is being very aggressive with their numbers, making the numbers look really good, having some other probability of actually coming through and probably underperforming but not really caring as much because they're a marketing machine and they're just going to find other investors anyway. So that's the highest level response I can give. And I'm a conservative person. So for me to know that someone's conservative is really good because I can also sleep better at night knowing that their reserves are going to probably going to be more conservative. They're probably going to be more cautious with their spending, just more interested in overperforming for investors in general. And they're trying to line the whole thing up to do that by buying the right deal to make that happen. So that's a really high level answer.
0: So do you Respond to every person who sends you a deal? That seems impossible because I know I don't. How do you start or how does an operator get with you? You mean like, how do they get you to respond and start the process?
1: So let me just clarify something because I, I didn't mean to laugh in a bad way. What I was envisioning, you're asking me because I'm on a lot of lists and so I don't respond to hardly any. Like I'm not going to invest and I don't respond to it. So that's why I'm laughing because I get so many deals every day. Right. And so if someone's new and they just randomly reach out to me, I will dig into a combination of who are they, how long have they been doing this? Is there some track record I can see? What is their background, like in industry itself? But interestingly enough, the most important thing I can see from that, those are important pieces. But if these other assumptions are like purchase price, cap rate, type of debt they're using, are they using conservative debt or not? Is their business plan aligning with what I look for a 10-year longer-term hold? Is all that aligning? Because there's no point in me finding the best person and match for me if they have a completely different business plan than I'd want to invest in. So if they look interesting, I'll then try to assess what is this business plan? Does it align with what I look for? And if it does, then I'll start to look at some of the assumptions. And if those align with what I look for, then I'll start to dig into it further and maybe talk to them. But what's been happening a lot in the past few years is that no one is aligned with what I normally do, because that actually didn't make sense at the time. And the sponsors knew it. So they went to a much heavier value add play. But I stay away from that at the end of a cycle. I do that at the beginning of a cycle. And that's when you build yourself the most runaway. We just talked about runaway before. But the sponsors are motivated to do it at the end of a cycle because the typical cash flow deal doesn't pencil and they know they won't get me because the cash flow won't be high enough. And so they pivot, do these other things. And those are the higher risk stuff that I tend to stay away from. So it's been fairly easy to turn down almost everything in the last few years for me.
0: That makes sense. It's a struggle for me. I'm in a different place, I'm a different part of my journey. And so I do get a lot of people. Coming to me and wanting me to evaluate their deals or their operations. And it's always difficult to figure out, okay, how do I find out if I even want to take that next step with you? And I think you gave some good pointers as far as making sure that they align with my investing philosophy.
1: Yeah, what I would tell you is that whether I get the deal from an investor or from a sponsor directly, the one rule I have is that if it's completely not the type of deal I'll invest in, I'll just reply and say, look, this is not a fit for me. Thanks for sending to me. It's not a fit for me because. I'm not doing value add right now, or I'm not doing bridge loan deals right now, or I'm on the sidelines for a regular market deal, whatever it is in one or two bullets. The one thing I won't do is I don't have the bandwidth because the same problem with you too much volume. So I don't have the bandwidth to analyze something that I'm not going to actually potentially invest in. I have to focus on putting that time, the limited of time I have into stuff that actually may be a fit. So if something isn't a fit, it's a very quick and easy response.
0: And I think that's where relationships come in because if someone just sends me a deal and and I don't know them, it's almost always going to be no thanks. But if someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to start a relationship and figure out if there's a way to do business, then it's easier to have a conversation and talk to them and see if there's there's a fit there. And if they understand, hey, it's going to take me a while to get comfortable with you, then we can move forward. But when people are just sending deals, that's an easy no, I think, in my opinion.
1: And honestly, I'm very prejudiced against it because the first question you ask yourself is why are they sending this to me? They need investors how badly donated investors. You know, so immediately you're starting off on a negative foot. Now, I still think it is worth spending the two minutes looking at the deal, trying to figure it out, but probably not more than two minutes if it's not going to be the right fit, which it isn't most of the time. And
0: So we've talked about a little bit about this, but I want to see if we can dial in a bit. You've talked before about the importance of investment criteria and having a particular to each investor, which you just mentioned. So as an example, your investment box, the kind of deals you would do is different than mine and is different than somebody else's. So how do you define that box and how should an investor determine what their box is? Because as we were talking about all these deals coming through, it's a lot easier if you have a defined box because you're like, that one doesn't fit.
1: Yes. So I cannot stress the importance of having the most tightly defined box that you're comfortable making if you're brand new, or even if you're not new, because you will save yourself a ton of time, especially if you're the type of person that will chase things that like a squirrel just getting distracted. Let me give you an example. And this is very tough for me to do at this moment because I haven't reset my cash flow targets because I'm waiting for the new cycle to start to do that. But in a typical time, better time in the the cycle, I could tell you that I invest in opportunities that are 80 to 100% occupied that are in non-volatile markets that with an experienced sponsor with a diversified tenant base that are typically class B or A- with a specific cash flow target for year one and a 10-year average annualized cash flow target from a projections perspective. Okay, stop right there. That will literally allow you to eliminate probably 75% of what if not more. Okay, just those few bullets. So if you can get to that level of granularity, and you can go deeper, by the way, you can say, I'm only gonna invest in these states or these cities, because I know them. whatever makes sense for you. So I'm just giving everyone an example. Because what that does is when I get I got a, the deal the other day, it was 1970s construction, interesting deal, actually, but not for me. And I just immediately passed, I can get a deal that's five year loan, fixed rate loan, or even a five year bridge loan, or it's, it's shorter term, and I pass, I can get a deal that has 30 tenants for an apartment building, and I pass. So it makes it so much easier and you just don't waste nearly as much time. So if you're just starting, it's probably one of the most important things you could do to avoid wasting time on a lot of stuff that you didn't realize was a bad fit for you.
0: That's great. That is such good advice. And I have to admit, I haven't done that nearly as well as I should have. I am that squirrel you were talking about, or the dog that's looking for that squirrel, however you want to say it, I am chasing shiny objects and I try to stop and I'm not very good at it. So I do need to define that box. But the next question, is there a different box for each asset class? Or how do you reconcile that?
1: Yeah. Well look, there are a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. It's whatever's the best fit for you. So the box I just told you actually applies to pretty much almost any asset class I can think of that I actually invest in. And that's the beauty of it. But you may say to yourself, actually, let me say there's tweaks. So for example, in mobile home parks, in apartments, I prefer over 100 units. Okay. In mobile home parks, I prefer typically over 75 units. In self-storage, I prefer, frankly, over 800 units, but I'll consider three to 800 units. And so you have to tweak each asset class very slightly. And then somehow you have to add things into. So for mobile home parks, for example, I probably won't invest in something that's more than 25%, max 30% park-owned home. So if it's high rental property, or if it's high vacancy, or if whatever it is, I'm not gonna less than 80 or 70% in mobile home parks occupied, won't look at it. So there is a slight tweak to each thing in retail, for example, I prefer to have over 10 and preferably over 13 tenants when I can. Same thing with industrial. I prefer to have over 13 tenants in office. That's a different story. I'm not really considering retail and office right now, but I'm just giving some people an idea. You do have to tweak it per asset class to an extent, but I still know that I don't want to invest in a very old office building or a very old mobile home park, or as an example. That's great. Such good
0: advice to figure out. And I love how you say each person needs their own box, right? Because we are so different, Jeremy. What I love about you is you understand that not everyone is as conservative as you, and so you're able to help people, even that though they're doing something that maybe you would not. That really helps us figure out our own space.
1: Yeah, and let me be clear: like I am on the sidelines right now, but I am 100 percent adamant in believing that if somebody is deploying capital today into the ten-year fixed-rate method that we talked about, that isn't worried about the asset price going down, just wants some cash flow in the meantime, they're going to do better than me in the long term. They just are mathematically. It's just that I sleep better not going into that deal. So everyone's got to do what's best for them.
0: That's great advice. So I want to end on something positive because this has been a downer, at least the beginning, right? (laughs) Because not your fault. You didn't make the economy what it is, but that's where we are and I get it. But what's the good news? What are we looking forward to? How are we going to make some money in the years to come? What are we looking forward to?
1: Yeah. The great news actually beyond good news is that we're months, if not more than a few months, away from prices really adjusting tremendously. That's good news. But having a recession in this case is good news to help with inflation. It's also good news for investors, because even though people be very fearful, that is the best time to invest. And the good news after that is that at, when you have the beginning of a cycle at your back, then you can look at all different types of opportunities. And maybe you would be like, I wouldn't have done heavy value add or medium value add the past few years, but that window opens up and that opens up for potentially better returns, depending on the risk scale, because in other ways, it's less risky because of the timing. There's a lot of good news ahead, but I think we have to get through the bad news period. And I will tell everybody, just remember what Warren Buffett says, be greedy when people are fearful, because people will be fearful. And that's exactly what happened in 2008, nine and 10. And do whatever you're comfortable with, clearly. But those are the periods that the best buys happen. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with waiting a year or two after and getting more comfortable and then going in because you're still getting in at a very good point in the cycle.
0: Excellent. And so that's all great advice. I'm glad that we have something to look forward to. And we just got to, as you said, get through this this difficult time and then the good times, hopefully will be back or at least maybe there'll be scary times, but there'll be good times for investors. And that's what we're hoping for. So I know we asked this the last time, but the last question I usually ask is
1: what's a podcast that you enjoy listening to? Good question. I honestly don't remember what I listened to or I mentioned last time, but one of the ones I like to mention, there's a lot of them. Okay. So it's not really a fair answer, but one of the ones I like to mention when I only can mention one is Cashflow Connections by Hunter Thompson. And I say this because I find that he gets a lot of guests who are not on other podcasts. So for example, he had Ethan Penner, who pretty much arguably invented like the CMBS loan and really knows the stuff, has a lot of experience. He was on this week. Great person to have at this timing with the lending environment, the way it is, but you're not going to find him on most or any of the other podcasts that typical people listen to. So the fact that if you're listening to a lot of podcasts out there, but you want a little bit of a change or something different, that's a really good one.
0: Excellent. And then the last question, I know you're not doing as many investor calls as you used to, but if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah. Best way to reach me is my email always, which is jroll, J-R-O-L at roll investments R-O-L investments with an S. So jroll at rollinvestments.com.
0: Excellent. I will put that in the show notes And again, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough. I know this podcast went a little bit longer than the normal one, but there's so much good content, so much to learn that I'm definitely going to be listening to this back a couple of times. So again, thank you for being such a great supporter of Left Field Investors and thanks for being on the show.
1: Oh, absolutely. I love Left Field. I love what you guys are doing. You're trying to help the community, which is fantastic. I can tell you right now, I've spoken to many left field members who get huge benefit for the efforts you guys are putting in. Kudos to you. And you guys are building a bigger and bigger base, which is fantastic. And I'm sorry I won't be attending the meeting you have coming up very shortly, but hopefully next year.
0: Absolutely. We'd love to see you at the next one. So thank you very much. And we'll do this again soon.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: I love talking to Jeremy Roll. He has so much knowledge. He's been doing this for a long time, and he is willing to share his knowledge. You can't find a nicer guy than that. He just will share, and all he wants to do is help others. So it's just phenomenal. I love talking to him. And I didn't catch this the first time we had the podcast, but when he was talking about how he got into passive investings, because he found that the stock market was volatile. Yes, that was one part, but also it lacked predictability, and he wanted predictability in his life, in his financial life, and that's when he dug around until he found passive income. And that's where he really got into this passive investing. So I thought that was interesting. And he was talking a lot about, look, if you're going to invest now, if you have money on the sidelines that you really want to, and can't wait three months, six months, a year, however long it's going to take, you need long-term deals. So you don't care if the asset goes up or down because you're in it for 10 plus years has fixed debt, so you don't get in trouble with the interest rates. And then it's already a cash flow stabilized deal. So that made sense to me. Those are the kind of deals that that you should be looking for, probably if you're still looking for deals. And then a lot of operators in some of these high volatile markets are ones that have had high rent increases. The operators there often say rents aren't going to go down because there's so many people moving to the area. There's so much demand. But Jeremy talked that through, right? And he said, once people start losing jobs because the economy is changing, interest rates are going up, inflation, people are going to start probably losing jobs, then they can't live in those places anymore. And so they bunk up with someone else. They move in with their parents, whatever. So that causes demand to go down. And when demand goes down, it'll match up more equitably with supply. And that's when rents could go down. So that's the first time someone has explained to me in a way that I understand it, at least the possibility of rents going down. So that's something to think about. I like his approach to finding operators and sponsors. And it's really his approach to everything. You find sponsors, partners, people that align with you. That if you're conservative, they're conservative in their investing philosophy, things like that. And then you build a long-term relationship. That's what Jeremy's looking for. He is not looking to do a one-off investment with anybody. He's looking to do an investment and then more and more down the road and build long-term relationships. And I love the way he describes, you gotta have your buy box, right? You gotta build a box, right? And he just spouted it off like he's done it a 100 times. He knows exactly what he's looking for. And I said, I'm looking for the shiny object, chasing the squirrel, all of that stuff. And I need to define that box of mine a lot better the way. Jeremy, like I said, he rattled it off. He's got it nailed down. And that's what we all should do. We should all figure out what our buy box is, and then tweak it as he did for every different asset class, because then that makes everything so much easier. But I will tell you, the number one thing I liked about talking to Jeremy, and this happens every time I talk to him, he mentioned there's a thousand ways to invest. You got to find what's right for you. And that is everything right you got to find out what works for you and you do it by trial and error you do it by using your community talking to other people and that's the nice thing about jeremy he's on the sidelines he's very conservative in his investing philosophy yet he even said that people that are doing the long term fixed rate cash flow 10 year deals they probably will end up ahead of him in the end but he's okay with that because he can sleep at night and that is the most important thing in your investing philosophy you have to do whatever makes you sleep at night you build your buy box and then you invest with what makes you comfortable. And part of the process is figuring out what is comfortable and what your buy box is. And that is a process. It's gonna take a while to figure out, but the sooner you can lock it down, you can always amend it, but the sooner you can lock it down, the better. So again, I love talking to Jeremy. He's so helpful and he's got such good ideas and he explains everything in a very simplified way. So that was a great episode for me to listen to. I guarantee you I'll be listening to that a couple of times just to hopefully digest everything he said. So that was a great episode. Thank you to Jeremy for being a great partner to Left Field Investors. And that's all we have for today. We'll see you next time in the left field.